About a month later, King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. But all the citizens of Jabez asked for peace. Make a treaty with us, and we will be your servants, they pleaded. All right, King Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gorge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel, replied the elders of Jabez. If no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen, and when he returned to the town, he asked, What's the matter? Why is everyone crying? So they told him about the message from Jabez. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. He took two oxen and cut them into pieces, and sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger, and all of them came out together as one. When Saul mobilized them at Bezek, he found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. So Saul sent the messenger back to Jabesh-Gilead to say, We will rescue you by noon tomorrow. There was great joy throughout the town when this message arrived. The men of Jabesh told their enemies, Tomorrow we will come out to you. We can do, and you can do to us whatever you wish. But before dawn the next morning, Saul arrived, Having divided his army into three detachments, he launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites and slaughtered them the whole morning. The remnant of their army was so badly scattered that no two of them left together. Then the people explained to Samuel, Now where are those men who said, Why should Saul rule over us? Bring them here and we will kill them. But Saul replied, No one will be executed today, for today the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us all go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. And so Saul has been privately anointed and appointed as king. And Saul has been publicly anointed and appointed as king. And after this, Saul has just gone home. <laughs> Last week we 
we saw this very anticlimactic part of the story where the people were chanting, Long live the king! Saul was chosen. And, and Samuel pointed out that Saul was taller than everybody else. He was more handsome than everybody else. He had darker skin than everybody else. He was stronger, had a more powerful presence than everyone else. He is kingly stuff. And then everybody just went home. And this is the part of the story that we were at. We saw last week that this is possibly, um, there's possibly the expectation here that Saul, after being anointed and appointed as, as king, will have to confirm his position as king and some sort of sort of battle. Well, church family, the battle is here. It's the very next part of the story. So what seemed anticlimactic to us last week now forms the climax of this part of the story. One of the climaxes in Scripture, and it is this battle against the Ammonites where Saul is confirmed. And we are going to look at this text in in three parts today. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see this Ammonite threat. In verses 5 through 11, we're going to see again how the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God, particularly here, King Saul. And then, in verses 12 through 15, we're going to see this praise again in the text. The praise of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. This holy roar. These military people praising God in unison and in celebration for victory. Throughout the course of my life and my ministry, I've heard it often said, I don't really need Christ or church to be a good person or to live a good life or to be fulfilled in this life. In fact, I used to be this way. In the text for today, something is going to be revealed about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And at the beginning of our lives and well into our lives and some people throughout their entire lives, we are so convinced that we are good people and that life is good enough without religion or life is good enough the way that I want to live life. And the text this morning is going to speak to this. And so those of us in this room who know someone who is like this, I'm good enough, my life really is fulfilling, I'm not that bad of a person, I don't really sin that much. And when I do sin, you know, it doesn't hurt anyone, right? And those of you who know someone like this, this text speaks to that. Those who are listening live or who will stream this, this later, please hear this message today. I beg you to listen to the, to the very end. And this morning is a historic moment for our church because it is the first time I will be able to cover an entire chapter <laughs> on Sunday morning. And so let's be excited and let's celebrate as we listen to the word of our Lord together and as we learn from the word of our, our Lord together. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, this Ammonite threat. This is the stuff of movies. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. 
And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. The Israelites in Jabesh, they, they were not prepared for conflict. They were not prepared for this Ammonite king to come against them, this king whose name is Nahash. Now we'll learn when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 10 that Nahash actually has peace with King David. He's still the king when King David is, is, is on the scene. And he has some kind of peace, some kind of friendship with King David. But right now he is public enemy of Israel. And Nahash, the, the Ammonite, came up and besieged Jabesh. And, and Jabesh has no defenses. They're not prepared for this. And so the elders of, of Jabesh-Gilead, they go out to, to Nahash and they say, Nahash, please do, not, please do not overtake our city. Please do not kill us. Please do not make war with us. Please, Nahash, make a covenant with us. Have peace with us. Maybe even protect us, right, as part of this covenant because we are not prepared. We submit ourselves, Nahash, to your authority as king because we have no defenses and we are not prepared. There's been some time since 1 Samuel chapter 4 when Israel went out to war against the Philistines. And in chapter 4, the scriptures tell us that God defeated Israel before the Philistines and and Israel lost at least 34,000 soldiers, 34,000 warriors, 34,000 military men in in this battle against the Philistines. Now it's been some time, probably enough time for a new generation of young men to Emerge, but as a result of this ongoing conflict with the Philistines previously in 1 Samuel, the, the nation is splintered. Maybe, like, maybe even like what we're seeing in the church today, right? The nation is splintered. The nation is broken. Each tribe is doing its own thing. They haven't, they haven't replaced their military power. Still in a way, they're, they're burned out and they are ill-prepared for the conflict against the Ammonites. We remember God defeated the Philistines before. It wasn't even the the military power of Israel. It was just God afflicted the Philistines. And now the Ammonites are coming against Jabesh, just one one city in the territory of Gilead. And they're ill-prepared. And so they implore King Nahash, please make a covenant with us so that our men and women and children don't have to die. You get the serious of this, right? And if you just, we just read the text, you know, like we have already done this morning, and it's just, we read the text as a blanket without using our imaginations just a little bit. Maybe we don't get the serious of this, this, but this is serious stuff going on here. Anytime there is war, conflict, battle, this is serious stuff. And so the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, he makes this counter offer, I will make this covenant with you on this condition. Right? I'm not just going to give you free peace. We came here for a reason. right? That I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. This was humiliation. And for, for the people of, of, of Jabesh, for the Jabeshites, this was pain. 
the gouging out of a right eye pain and humiliation. But it's not only humiliation for the Jabeshites, for the, for the people in, in, this, in this area. But King Nahash says this is going to symbolize something for all of Israel. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. This, this symbol for you, Jabeshites, this will be humiliation for all of Israel. Not only in this town or in this territory, but for all of Israel. The same was true when the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4 took the Ark of God's covenant as their possession. And their eyes, they were taking the God of Israel into their territory. And it was meant by the Philistines as humiliation for all of Israel. This is what Nahash is proposing here. I will spare your life, but all of Israel will be humiliated. The elders of Jabesh made another counteroffer. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Let us send messengers to ask for reinforcements from the other tribes. The nation of Israel is splintered. Nahash probably knows this. He is probably aware of this, right? Every king is probably a good strategist and a good tactician. At least, you know, we want our kings and our leaders to be good strategists and good tacticians. And so we think that Nahash was probably a good strategist and a good tactician. He probably knows that the nation of Israel is is splintered. And so when the Israelites make this request, this is like a final plea. Like, please let us send messengers. Maybe we can get some reinforcements and fight you in a proper battle. And Nahash, you guys are making this way too easy for me. You're going to send for reinforcements, and your whole nation is still splintered. You haven't had a military conquest since 1 Samuel chapter 4. You haven't been training your military You're making this way too easy for me. Yes, send for reinforcements, and when they don't come, I will take possession of this land, and it will be humiliation for all of Israel. Then, verse 4, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, the land of Saul, where Saul lived, and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And the people's response, get this, And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. We're not prepared for this either. We can't send reinforcements. Now our cousins in Jabesh, they're going to be under the rule of Nahash, king of the Ammonites, and the whole nation is going to be humiliated. How is this any different from 1 Samuel chapter 4 when they took the ark and we wept because God defeated us before the Philistines? Now here comes the Ammonites... Right? And God is going to defeat us before them too? In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it was the sons of Eli who were corrupt. And part of God's punishment was that He defeated the Israelites before the Philistines. In chapter 8, leading up to this story, we learn that Samuel, who is leading the nation, his sons are corrupt. It's like the same story replaying in the minds of the Israelites and God is going to defeat us again. And do we see the parallels in Scripture? And history repeats itself in a, 
a great philosopher once said we learn from history that people don't learn from history. Well, you can see why the Israelites are in such disarray at this news when these messengers come. And presumably the whole nation of Israel is now weeping like this. We remember what happened with the Philistines. We remember how we went up in battle against them and they, and they killed a few thousand men. And then we went and got the ark and we went into battle again and they killed 30,000 men. We remember that. And the slaughter was great. And now it's going to happen again? And so we see that the Ammonites pose this grave threat to the nation of Israel, particularly to the people of Jabesh-Gilead, right? But the whole nation of Israel is, is going to be humiliated as a result of this, this threat. And Israel, and every tribe, presumably, is ill-prepared to deal with this threat. The Ammonites are going to take Jabesh, and what's to stop them from moving on to the next town, and the next town, and the next town? We are a splintered nation. We are not ready for this. We are not prepared. Verses 5-11. through 11. We're going to see how the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament... Whoever said that the Holy Spirit is not present in the Old Testament? Let's read this together. Chapter 11, verses, verses 5 through 11. The Holy Spirit will empower Saul. Now behold, Saul. Now let's remind ourselves of who Saul is. His character. Samuel anointed Saul. On his way home from this private anointing, Saul... <laughs> Saying with the singing prophets, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, changed Saul into a, a different person. And he was praising God in celebration with loud noises and singing according to the preferences that God has given in His Word for, for the music in, in, in His church or the music ministry of His people and the nation of Israel. And Saul is caught up in this and, 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 and things are good and he, he gets home to his uncle and... Eh. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't even share the cool stuff that happens. Saul is being anointed and appointed publicly after that. And when lots are, are cast and Saul is chosen publicly, of course God already knew that was going to happen, right? But Saul is chosen publicly and he's hiding in the baggage. See this, you know, who Saul is. And then Saul is a anointed, appointed as king publicly. And he goes home, and the indication of the text there is that he, he goes home and he just plugs back into the same old routines. Now we we do this, right? Saul. What are you doing, bro? Do we not do the same thing? We, every Sunday, we come here and we get to hear the Word of God, right? God speaks every Sunday. We hear every Sunday. 
good message, Pastor. Well, you were teaching the Bible, so I hope it's a good message. <laughs> you know, good message. And it's God's message. And then after church, maybe we go home and plug into the same routine. Maybe the scripture calls us to change, convicts us in some way as a church body and still as a church body from Sunday to Sunday the same routine. Our routines can be good, don't get me wrong, if they're godly routines, right? But if it's the case that God shows us something in His, in His Bible... His preferences according to His word, His desire, His will. And we just... The same thing. Maybe that says something about where our hearts are. And I won't say any more than that. But the text seems to indicate that's what's going on with Saul. Long live the king. Okay, I'm going to go farm again. Right? Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What was he doing? Was he preparing to be king? Coming from the field behind the oxen. No, he, he's farming again. Again, not actively participating in the will of God. Again, in some way running from the will of God, the instruction of God coming from the field behind the oxen, right? He was... He's out plowing the field. He's not preparing to be king, not preparing to lead the people, not building relationships with maybe the elders of the lands. Maybe even Saul's not aware of his job description, right? Have you ever plugged into one of those jobs and there's not really a job description and you get in there and it's like, I have no idea what, what is expected, right? There was no, no clear job description. People just put a title on you and then, okay, Thank you for being here. Thank you for serving. And they have expectations, just not voice. Now, now the expectations for Saul have been revealed to us, right? That he would deliver Israel from the Philistines. But that was, God, God revealed that to Samuel. And we don't have any clear indication in the text up to this point that this has been revealed to Saul. It may have been, it may not have been. We, just, we don't get that detail in the text. All we know is that Saul's not preparing to serve in this role as king. He's plowing the field. What is the matter with the people that they weep? Saul comes. He didn't, wasn't even a recipient of the messenger's message. He comes back from plowing the field. What is wrong with everybody? Everybody was happy when I left. What happened? Did somebody die? You know, that's what we'd say today. Did somebody die? What's the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. The people there, presumably the messengers, have moved on to spread the message elsewhere. The people there in Saul's hometown, in his homeland, they relay this message. And Saul has quite a different response than the people do. Verse 6. Then, and this is the second time that we see this in the story of Saul. Then the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words. And he became very angry. Righteous indignation 
toward the Ammonites because the Ammonites are coming against the people of God. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them to pieces. Now this is out of character for Saul. Saul, who is you know, perhaps an introvert, which I resonate with. Saul, who doesn't want to stir things up. Saul, who hides in the baggage claim. Saul, who doesn't share the amazing things that God is doing, the movement of the Holy Spirit. This Saul hears this and turns. He's riding behind oxen. We can picture this in our minds. He's riding behind these oxen. And he turns and he dashes these oxen to pieces because the Holy Spirit moves him to anger, changes him into a different person. What he does here is inconsistent with the character that he has shown up to this point because the Holy Spirit has moved him, come upon him. And this is the second time in the story we have seen the Holy Spirit move Saul to become a different person. Changing his heart, changing his character, changing his attitude, changing his emotions. And the first time was when the singing prophets were coming down from the high place at Bethel. And the Holy Spirit moved Saul. And Saul became a different person and got caught up in this Holy Spirit-filled praise of these singing prophets, singing with them. Who ever said that the Holy Spirit is not working in the Old Testament? So Saul dashed these oxen to pieces and sent the pieces of these oxen throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers. And he sent them with this message saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen, his livelihood. If you don't come out and fight with us against the Ammonites, your oxen will be dashed. Saul goes from hiding to commanding an entire nation in an instant because the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him. Then, as a result of this message, then the dread of the Lord fell on the people. And they came out as one man, as one nation, under one king. Sounds like Saul is being confirmed to me. I want to look at this. I just want to realize the work of the Holy Spirit here. Saul was the best man that Israel had to offer. And he is hiding from God in one moment. He is plugged into routine one moment. He's doing the only thing he knows how to do in one moment. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul and in an instant qualifies him, empowers him, gives him the emotion that he needs. Anger, righteous indignation. And gives him the knowledge that he needs to make the correct command. And empowers him to do just the right action. 
that is inconsistent with His character to bring an entire nation together in an instant under a single king? Yo, this is the stuff of legend. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just, you know, two weeks ago, we saw that the Holy Spirit moves us to praise, moves us to worship, changes us into different people, so to speak. I think we're still cognizant of what we're doing, right? It's not like something weird out there. But changes us into different people, empowers us, enables us to praise God in spirit and in truth. And we saw how God has given us His preferences throughout His Bible for the music ministry of His people. We saw that it's celebration and it is organized noise. And we saw how God moves His people in song. But that's not the only thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit also, according to the explicit description of this text, moves the people of God to service. And God has called Saul to be king. And now we see the Holy Spirit qualifying Saul as king of God's people, despite what he will become in the future, this ravenous wolf that Samuel has predicted. The Holy Spirit has equipped the king that the Father has called. So we see this working of the Holy Spirit even throughout the Old Testament, right? And then we remember like the, the different persons of the Trinity. We have the Father who ordains all things, who predestines all things, who works all things, right? Who's the one who wills. This is the Father. And then we see the Son, Jesus Christ. And we, we talk about Jesus every week because we worship Jesus every week, hopefully every day, right? So we talk about Jesus, and Jesus is the the Word, the eternal Word, who reveals the will of the Father, who reveals the Word of God. Jesus is the one who speaks even through the prophets and to the prophets. It's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But then we see the Holy Spirit, the member of the Trinity, who does the effectual work of the Godhead. And so we have the Father who ordains, who wills, the Son who reveals, and the Spirit who works does the effectual work. And here, what's happening with Saul is like, it's comparable to the regeneration of the Christian's heart. Saul is changed. There's a flip that is switched. A switch that is flipped. And Saul's heart, right? And it changes him, and all of a sudden he goes from hiding from God's will, plugging into the same routines, to zealous passion for the things of God and for the war that God is going to fight against the Ammonites because the Ammonites are coming against the people of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And without this switching of our flip, without this flipping of our switch in our hearts, we are like Saul before this conversion That's what we would call this, right? Is a conversion. Unable to come to Christ. Concern with our preferences. 
concerned with our routines, concerned with our traditions, concerned with our religion. But the Holy Spirit comes and does this effectual work of God according to the will of God and our desires are changed. We become zealous and passionate not for our own things, but for the things of God at home, at work, at church, and anything else we may be involved in, right? And as we see here, obedience obedience follows conversion. We are converted by the work of the Holy Spirit. Saul is converted by the work of the Holy Spirit and then obedience. Obedience in the life of Saul. When we tell this story too often, we skip over the good parts of Saul's life and Saul's ministry and, and Saul being king over Israel. Do we not realize that the Holy Spirit is working here? The Holy Spirit is working here. And the result is that this message from Saul goes forth to the people of Israel. And oh, things are getting serious now. Saul's getting serious. He is not playing around. If we don't follow Saul out to battle, you know, this new generation of young men coming up who hasn't been trained militarily so far as we know, if we don't go out and follow Saul into battle against the Ammonites... All of our oxen will be dashed to pieces and we won't have any way to harvest our fields, you know. Oxen, using oxen in a, in a yoke was technologically advanced for the time. I guess they could just go back to the old way of doing things. No, we don't want to do that. And all of Israel, because the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, because the Holy Spirit moved Saul, Saul became angry. Anger caused Saul to dash the oxen into pieces and send this message out to the Israelites. Uh, effectively, the Holy Spirit is causing Saul to put the fear of God into the nation of Israel. And this is serious stuff. And then, because the people feared God, not because God was nice, but because... The people feared God because the fear of the Lord fell upon them because of the dread. And that's the way this is described in the New American Standard. The dread of the Lord fell on the people. This is why they came out as one man under one king. Not because God was trying to attract them or entertain them, but because the fear of God fell on the, on the people. I have to... Here, just notice something about my own life, right? I was the person in my childhood. I grew up in church and I still thought this way. I'm good. Not a terrible person. I don't cuss or drink, and I didn't before I came to know Christ. I don't cuss, I don't drink. Really, I'm a good person. And I'm pretty satisfied in my life. I'm happy where I'm at. I don't really need religion to make my life any better. I get to do all of the things that I want to do. I get to do them the way that I want to do them. I have friends. I have a girlfriend. A girl that I 
intended at that time to spend the rest of my life with, right? I have all the entertainment options I could possibly have available to me. I don't really need to be saved. I'm not in danger. What is this thing called saved that Christians keep talking about? I'm in church, right? And I still don't get it. Religion was this thing that people needed to to live a good life and and to be satisfied in this life. And I was already living a good life and I was already satisfied in the life. So I didn't need religion. It was it was a crutch for people who didn't already have that. They needed this religion thing, not me. So this is how I live my life and go about my life. And then in a moment, it hits me. Now, I heard the gospel preached, right? People explained it to me. This is the gospel. It's not about your good works. It's not about your living a good life. And I just never, never clicked. But then in a moment, that's 15 years old, the Holy Spirit switched that flip in my heart. I'm just doing it on purpose now. The Holy Spirit did this work in my life that we refer to as conversion, right? And then it hit me like a brick or a fist. Christianity is not about learning how to live a good life, about learning how to be successful. Christianity is not just this practical religious thing that helps people through hard times. Christianity is not this crutch. Christianity, Andrew Cannon, is this truth that Christ is King and that your rightful place, sinner, is is in submission to this King bowing on your knee before Him. It's not about the, the way that you live your life, trying to be more satisfied. Unfortunately, in so many churches across this nation, the message is this. You want to live a happy and satisfying life? Come to Christ. Go ahead and walk to the front. This is the opposite of what the Bible tells us. When that hit me, I was a lot like Saul. Going from routine to, oh my gosh, God, what, what do you want me to do? I have to know more. I have to know you more. How do I effectively bow at your feet? Where will you lead me? And it's a happens in a moment. We start to care about other stuff, and we call that conversion. And it's a work explicitly here in this text of the Holy Spirit. Not my, oh, I think I need Jesus to do something. From my perspective, yeah, I was coming to Christ. We all start at that point, right? I came to Christ. I came to Christ when I was da-da-da, and I chose to follow Christ when I was da-da-da. 
that's where we begin, I think, in our Christian walk because we, I mean, because we see things from our perspective. The scripture identifies this wholly as a work of the Holy Spirit. We'll call it the work of regeneration. And that moment is the moment of conversion. And it's the Holy Spirit who does this. And because the Holy Spirit is doing this in Saul, all of Israel now coming out in unison under a single king, just as God has been working together throughout 1 Samuel up to this point so far. And this kingly office that is now being established in Saul. And Saul being changed into the person that God wants to lead, God's nation. This kingly office is it's just another picture of Christ. It's another living parable of who Christ is. It's a pictorial prophecy of what Christ will become. And this throne is it's being established for Jesus, and Jesus will be king of Israel forever, perpetually, you know, when we get to the Gospels. Jesus will be the deliverer of His people. Whereas today we see the splintered church, a broken people. And we see so many people in the world who reject Christ, who want nothing to do with the church body. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is doing such a work where in the end, in the resurrection, all of God's people, despite how splintered the church seems to be now, right? I think God has ordained the splintering of the church so that we focus on Him and not on ourselves, not on our institutions or organizations. But there will be a time when the church is unified. One church under one king. The king won't be Saul, it will be Jesus Christ. And so the gospel isn't about my living a better life, my learning how to do stuff better, about my you know, getting what I need from Jesus so that I can make it through the week. That's not Christianity in the slightest. We hear all the time, you come to church to get filled so that you can get through the week. No. We come to church because Christ has already given us victory and because we present ourselves before Him. And we come to church, excuse me, we come to this building as the church so that we can bow before Christ and so that we can worship Christ according to the preferences of Christ and so that we can hear from Christ Christ. And we want to hear from Christ so that we can better submit to Christ because Christ is King. See how this thing isn't even about us. And it begins not with somebody being attracted or entertained or getting a good feeling or getting goosebumps in a church service. It begins with a dread of the Lord. There's a reason... Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Solomon, who will come on the scene two generations after this text, after Saul. Solomon writes, The fear of the Lord. Fear, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
the whole Christian life begins when we recognize who God is and the dread of the Lord falls upon us and the fear of God is put in us that's when it begins verse 8 he Saul numbered them in Bezek and the sons of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000 So the Holy Spirit, now, and this is explicitly the work of the Holy Spirit at this point, we can't deny that, walking through this story, walking through this text of Scripture, the Holy Spirit has now provided 330,000 men, it's probably a round number, it's probably not precise, you know, uh, 334,865.3, you know, the Scripture doesn't give us a number like that, oh, .3, that would be weird, we're not taking children into battle, forget I said .3, 330,000 is probably a round number, right? And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Praise God that something is happening. Because this threat, I don't want to lose my right eye. And I don't want all of Israel to be humiliated. Praise God that something is about to happen. I am so glad. Verse 10. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow, they're speaking to the Ammonites now, just to clarify. Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Thank the Lord helps coming. But just in case, we're making this plan so that we don't all die, because this option is better. Right? Verse 11. The next morning before the men of Jabesh went out to the Ammonites to surrender. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of day, from the morning watch till the heat of day, five or six hours. That's how long this battle was. Those who survived of the Ammonites, those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The Holy Spirit produced righteous indignation in Saul. An entire nation united under this king that God has selected. And Israel is delivered from bondage, from the loss of sight, from humiliation. God is delivering His people. And Saul is confirmed as as king. Verses 12 through 15. A holy roar. What is the response of the people when God delivers victory like this? A victory that is impossible. This is an impossible victory if you didn't know. Saul's not prepared to be a king. He's not prepared to lead an army. He's a farmer. He's a redneck. He's not training for this. Israel is splintered. Israel is hurt. Israel is not prepared. Israel is weeping in in one moment. And then there is victory. How are you not going to celebrate this? What God is doing through the power of His Holy Spirit explicitly. 
verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Referring to the previous chapter when there were some wicked men, sons of Belial, right? Who despised Saul, who started criticizing Saul from the beginning. Who weren't excited about the plan of God. And these guys who participated in this battle with Saul, maybe even some of the valiant men, the mighty men we saw in the previous chapter, go up to Samuel, the prophet of God, and and ask, Who? Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men, these wicked men, the sons of Belial, that we may put them to death as punishment for their questioning of God's will. It's easy for us to go just a little too far, isn't it? Get excited about the plan of God and maybe overreach what God has instructed us to do. I think that might be what's going on here. But Saul, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit at this point, who has been moved by the Holy Spirit to this action, who has the Holy Spirit counseling him and guiding him. And Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Why would we, Saul, why would we mess up a day of deliverance by killing a bunch of Israelites? No, we're not going to do that today. There has been mercy today. And God is the one who is identified as merciful. Look at verse 13. Saul says, The Lord, Yahweh, has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul didn't say, I accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul didn't say these 330,000 men have accomplished deliverance in Israel. He didn't say this, right? No, he says in verse 13, the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. He recognizes the Lord's work. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to, to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Why would the kingdom need to be renewed It's, it's a splintered kingdom. It's broken. It's like my phone currently. If you guys have tried to call me, I'm so sorry. My phone is done. Some of you have seen it. It looked like the nation of Israel, splintered, shattered, broken at this point, right? From this major defeat in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And so Samuel says, after this, after being unified under Saul, the king that God has chosen, then Samuel says, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the nation. Revive the nation, rebuild the nation, reestablish the nation of Israel. This is the stuff the Holy Spirit is doing. This is the stuff that the victory of God works out in our lives. Right? Renewal, revival, restoration, healing. In this case, the healing of an entire nation. The second part of verse 15. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings. And we've seen peace offerings before in in the text of 1 Samuel, haven't we? Elkanah's offering in chapter 1 was a peace offering. An offering of praise, thanksgiving to God. The offering of those, those men 
who were going up to the high place at Bethel, peace offering, and they included Saul in their, in their praise and their thanksgiving. Here, a praise offering, and all of the people are offering this, this praise, this peace offering, this offering of thanksgiving to God. Why? To try and gain something from God? God has already given victory. They're praising Him for what He has already done for His renewal, for His healing. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there, Saul, who in chapter 10, remember, was caught up by the Holy Spirit in this amazing act of worship, prophetic worship, prophetic singing. And here, Saul and all the men of Israel, the warriors, the militants, the soldiers of Israel, rejoiced greatly. One of the finest things that I've ever heard with my ears was a worship service with men in the army singing hymns to God. It was a holy Roar. And just imagine 330,000 men lifting up their voices to God, singing and celebrating what God has done in God's victory over death here, over humiliation, and over, and over sin. How can a converted people have any response that is any different than it than this. Two weeks ago we saw we saw the praise that God desires described in in his text and again we see praise described in scripture. It's like, okay, if it's if it's it, we see it once in the story, fine, but now we're seeing it again. Praise, worship before God because of what God has done. And we remember all of the things that God desires in the worship of His holy name from two weeks ago. And then added to this, it's 330,000 men doing this. Saul's song from chapter 10, as he is caught up with this singing prophets, becomes the song of all the men of Israel. So we see again that the proper response to God's work in our lives is, is singing. Singing and dancing and the giving of our of ourselves. Why do we get so caught up in routine? After seeing this in the scriptures, and still we get caught up in our routines. And still we like saw before the conversion by the Holy Spirit. We just Go back to where we were and where we have always been. Next week, I hope some of you show up with tambourines. <laughs> oh. Or rattles. Rattles are easier. You just go out in the yard and shoot a snake. And <laughs> Calm down. Why do we get so plugged into routine that we... We resist so much the worship of God and the way that God clearly spells out His preferences throughout His text of Scripture. 
don't have the answer. It's, it's because our hearts are hard, hardened, because we like the stuff that we like. And that's what happens in conversion, though, is instead of liking the things that we like so much, all of a sudden we're concerned about the things that God likes and the things that God asks us for in His Word. Our wills are, are changed to the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who reigns as King. I said it earlier, I'll say it again, the Christian life isn't about us coming and getting something from church. It's one of the worst lies I've ever heard from any pulpit and from any teacher. You don't come here to fill your tank for the week. We come here because we want to submit to King Jesus. Period. Because the Christian life isn't about us, it's about the glory of the Father and the exaltation of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, as we see in this text again in 1 Samuel.